all. And as you're getting back to your seats, I thought as we're settling in, we'd start with a little Memorial Day trivia, all right? So for kids in the room, uh, if you you know the answer, yell it out. Adults too, that's good as well. Uh, Anybody here know uh, what Memorial Day was originally called, the original name? Decoration Day, very good, yes, originally called Decoration Day. Uh, Second question, Memorial Day was originally created to honor the fallen soldiers of which war? Civil War, very good, I see that hand. And number third, I guess I did say to raise your hand, didn't I? That's on me, all right. Number three, what poem inspired the tradition of wearing and planting poppy blossoms for Memorial Day? Right here. Yeah, the practice is painting flowers, and you know that what the poem is called. There's a specific poem in the back. That's it, Flanders Fields. All right, you guys are up on your Memorial Day trivia. That's good. Uh, I am grateful for this opportunity uh, this weekend to be mindful um, of sacrifice. That God has woven this story into all the stories we value, stories where there is sacrifice, where someone's willing to give themselves for the sake of somebody else. Uh, it's telling us something about reality, that our hearts naturally swell to that story. So this weekend, as we remember our country and those that have given themselves on behalf of our country, I want us to kind of turn this morning to, to realize how that story points to the greater story and how there is one who has given himself for our freedom in a greater sense. And so this morning, we're going to consider Article 5, the work of Christ. Now, as Christy also mentioned earlier, uh, there's not any dig this morning, and uh, so we're glad to have all you kids in the house. Uh, I will do my best to be as engaging and brief as possible, but no promises, all right? So glad you're here. Uh, We are five weeks into a teaching series called This We Believe, going through the Evangelical Free Church Statement of Faith. Our church is part of this denomination. There's about 1,500 churches nationwide, and we're held together around this statement of faith. Uh, These 10 articles uh, are the essentials of what we believe. We've already covered the doctrine of God, the Bible, the human condition, and then the person of Christ. So you see there's an order to this. We first look at a God who made everything and whose image we're made, then the Bible that God reveals himself to us, and then people made in God's image, wonderful beings, but also fallen, broken beings. And so then we see the person of Christ that God has come to deliver us, to to address the problem in this world. And today at Article 5, we get to the heart of the story. Right smack dab in the middle is the work of of Christ. Now, all of these doctrines are essential, very important. It doesn't mean they are all equal of weight. This one right here is about as heavy and important as it gets, all right? So this morning is a biggie. What is the work of Christ? So I want us to consider two phrases here. I want to contrast them throughout the message. First phrase is good advice, all right? If I was to tell you, kids, that you should study hard so that you do well at school, that would be good advice. All right? If you do study hard, if you learn and grow, it's going to bode well for you throughout life as you learn. That's good advice. But my guess is when I tell you that, you might think, thanks a lot, good advice, but that's still something I have to do. And you might not take it that well, that good advice. 
Now, if I was to tell you a different message, something like, the Celtics won last night, all right? Yes, that is good news. See, good news is about an event that has already happened that brings us joy today. So good advice, something you must do in the future. Good advice, some, or good, good news, something that has already happened and that affects your life going forward. Now, I am very happy the Boston Celtics won. But if we were to talk about something much more significant, let's say that we actually were right now in a time where our country was actively engaged in a war. And we were to get a headline saying, the war is over, we have won. That's good news. Good news. And what we're talking about today is good news about an event that has happened in the past that gives us great joy, freedom, and peace in the present. So all through this message, we're going to contrast good advice and good news. What Jesus came to do and what he did brings good, uh, is good news for us today. So I'm going to read again uh, Article 5 in the uh, Statement of Faith, and then we'll dive in. It says, We believe that Jesus Christ, as our representative and substitute, shed his blood on the cross as the perfect, all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. His atoning death and victorious resurrection constitute the only ground for our salvation. Will you join me in prayer? God, we are so grateful that we get to uh, come together today. Uh, we are grateful, Lord, for the country we live in. We're grateful for the sacrifice that so many have made, uh, Lord, that uh, causes us to be able to live as we do. So we, we thank you for that. We thank you, Lord, too, for the truths that we're going to consider today. Lord, the good news of Jesus. So God, I pray today you give us ears to hear from you. Help this truth to sink down deep into our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Three things today that we're going to consider that is good news about the work of Christ. The first one is that Jesus is humanity's perfect representative. All right, that's the first one. Jesus is humanity's perfect representative. Now, to understand the work of Christ, to really understand what's so good about it, uh, we need to understand the representative reality that we live in. And this is a little bit of a, of a stretch for us. In our modern Western world, we tend to think primarily in individualistic terms, um, things about our responsibility, our effort, things that we do that produce the results in life. But that often minimizes the fact that there are real social uh, solidarities of nation, tribe, family. The Bible reveals that we exist in a representative reality, not just an individualistic reality. That's the story it's telling. Uh, let me give you three examples from the Old Testament. Uh, the very first human beings that were made, Adam and Eve, we're told that Adam is a representative of the human race. Somehow, what Adam did affects us all. His, uh, his deeds affect the many. Uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 12 says this about Adam. It says, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Somehow in Adam, uh, he was representing the human race, and his actions affect everyone. And you might think, well, that's not fair. Well, I won't jump too far ahead, but neither is the solution, all right? But if we don't understand the representative reality, we're going to have a hard time understanding the solution. Uh, Adam represented humanity in his brokenness. 
Secondly, in the Old Testament, we see uh, that God raises up the nation of Israel to act as a, as a light to the nations. It was to demonstrate to the nations who God is in his ways. And as you go through the books of the Old Testament, like First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, they tell us about all the different kings, whether they were good or bad. And it always starts off by saying, like, and King so-and-so reigned X number of years, and he walked in the ways of the Lord, as did the nation. Or he did not walk in the ways of the Lord and led Israel astray. Always, the actions of the king affect the nation. Somehow they're linked. The goodness or the badness of the king affects the goodness or the badness of the nation. There's a representative reality for the kings of Israel. But nowhere is this reality seen more clearly than in the Old Testament uh, temple system that had priests. That people would, would come to the temple and they would bring sacrifices for worship. But they themselves would not be the ones to perform the sacrifice, to offer the prayer for the forgiveness of sins. It was the priest who does the sacrifice, the priest who burns the incense. It's the priest that is going before God on behalf of the people. You see, the priest is a representative to God for the people. Now, if you're a person going in with your sacrifice, you are really hoping that this priest has his act together because how the priest performs it really affects you. It's a representative reality, the priest representing the people to God. And when we come to the New Testament, we see this wonderful truth that Jesus is the fulfillment of all earlier representatives. He is the second Adam, as he's called in the New Testament, where Adam failed, Christ succeeded. Adam's sin brought death to everyone. Christ's obedience brings life to everyone. Jesus is the perfect king who did not lead the nation astray, but led the nation toward life. And Jesus is our great high priest. And I want us to consider uh, one passage about Jesus being our high priest. Bjorn a couple weeks ago mentioned that Hebrews is a great book of the Bible if you're looking to get this like, big picture view of Jesus, and he's right. So we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 through chapter 8, verse 1. It says, uh, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. There's a lot there, and we're not going to get to it all, but two things I want to point out. First is talking about Jesus' life on earth. And it's saying that Jesus lived the life that we should have lived. As our representative, Jesus not only died for us, before that he lived for us. It's said there in that passage that he is the high priest, has no need like the other earthly priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins. That Jesus is holy, innocent, unstained. Jesus never sinned. Jesus is what humanity is supposed to be. Jesus is the perfect human. And so Jesus lived in our place. He lived representing us. 
He fulfilled the law for us. He perfectly loved God for us. Uh, He loved others for us. He did all of this in our place so that his record of righteousness then becomes ours. Now, um, I like to golf, but I'm not a good golfer, all right? I've golfed with some of you. You know that. Uh, I love playing a version of golf uh, commonly called best ball, where you go out with usually three other guys, and everyone takes a shot. And the one shot of the four that is the best, everyone moves their ball to that spot and plays from that person's stroke. The best of the group gets credited to everyone. Now, rarely is my shot used, and that's okay. I get to play from the best of the group. And in a somewhat similar way, Jesus' life is like that. That his life is the best life, and his life is credited to us. Jesus represents humanity in his life. But it's even more than that, because Jesus not only represented humanity when he lived on earth in his life, he now represents humanity in heaven. That's what that passage is telling us. It says, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. That Jesus is in heaven now, and he's not just kicked back in a lazy boy. He's doing something. Jesus is active right now. You say, what is it that he is doing? Well, Romans chapter 8, verses 33 through 34, tells us exactly what Jesus is doing at the right hand of God in heaven. It says, who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one. And here it is. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us and is sitting at the place of honor at God's right hand pleading for us. Pleading for us. This is what Jesus is doing right now. He is representing us in heaven. Now we naturally might think that what he is doing is saying, why can't you guys get it together? Why can't these people that I loved and died for get it together and finally act the way I intend them to act? But the scriptures don't say that's what he's saying. He is pleading for our mercy, for our forgiveness, for God to continue to give us all that we need to become the kind of people God saved us to be, that Jesus is representing us in heaven now in that way. Uh, When my wife was a high school uh, student, she uh, got her uh, driver's license towards the end of high school. Very exciting time when you get your driver's license. And uh, Within the first year of getting your license back then, if you got a speeding ticket, you then would lose your license for a period of time. So especially in that first year of driving, you didn't want to get a speeding ticket. Well, my wife had and maybe has somewhat of a lead foot, and so she got a speeding ticket her first year of having her license. Um, And so she was very distraught about this. What am I going to do? I can't lose my license. I have a job. And so she talked to one of her friends about this. And her friend said, don't say anything to anyone. You need to talk to my dad, who was Wendy's Sunday school teacher, who also happened to be a lieutenant in the police force. So Wendy went to Sunday school class with her speeding ticket tucked away, and after class came up to the the teacher and presented the ticket. And he shook his head and said, let me see what I can do. And he went and talked to the officer who had given the ticket and And the officer agreed, you know what? We don't need to enforce this one. Had nothing to do with my wife, 
pleading her a case. It had everything to do with her relationship to one who could, that he was her representative. He pled on her behalf that she would not get what she deserved. And thankfully, that's exactly what worked out. Anybody had that experience? Oh, a few of you. Okay, okay, very good. <laughs> well, Jesus is our perfect representative. Good news. Good news. Not good advice. He is our perfect representative in how he lived and how he lives in heaven now. But he not only lived the life that we should have lived, the scriptures tell us he died the death we should have died. The second aspect of Jesus' work we're going to consider is that Jesus is humanity's atoning sacrifice. Jesus is humanity's atoning sacrifice. See, unlike a speeding ticket, sin can't just be overlooked. You may wonder, why couldn't God just get over our sin? Why couldn't He just say, ah, no biggie, you know, I forgive you. Why the cross? Why did Jesus have to die? You see, sin is not just this mere uh, formality, something insignificant you can just look the other way about. Sin causes death and destruction. Sin brings brokenness. And what is broken? In order for it to be repaired, there is always a cost. Always a cost to fix what is broken. Now, um, my kids are a little bit older, so they have not been, uh, they do not have the, the, the latest uh, gaming uh, devices. So I, I think right now, is the Nintendo Switch one of the big gaming devices? Is that right? Yes. Okay. Thank, thank you, Soren. All right. Nodding. So let's just say one of you kids in the room here today had a Nintendo Switch. And I was getting bored in church. Just let's just say that. And I wanted to start playing the Nintendo Switch. So I said, please let me borrow your Nintendo Switch. And you were kind enough to give it to me. And let's say I was playing it and became very upset at how I was playing. So much so that I threw the device and broke it. I'm guessing you would not be very happy with me. Now, and that would give us a dilemma. In order for you to again return to your gaming, to enjoy that device, it would need to be replaced. And there would be a cost. Now, you could say, Sam, uh, you broke it, you pay for it. I would have to pay for the brokenness. That's one option. Or you could say, you know what? I really think you probably didn't fully mean it. I'll pay for it to replace it. And that'd be very kind and gracious. But either way, somebody's got to pay the cost. You see, sin demands that somebody pay the cost. If what is broken is going to be restored, there must be payment. And the great question is, who will pay for sin? It's one of the great questions, whether we know it or not, that we individually are asking, that societies are asking, how can sin be paid for? Now, a couple common ways we as humans attempt to atone for sin. And atone simply means pay for. How do we as humans try to deal with sin, pay for sin? Well, one way that we often try to do this is uh, we try to see if our good deeds can outweigh our bad deeds. Maybe you get in trouble at home and you think, yeah, I know I did that wrong thing, but look at all the other good things I did. Look at how well I treated my brothers and sisters. So often we try to focus on our good deeds, hoping to outweigh our bad deeds. But here's the catch. One good deed can never fix a bad deed. It may be good to do a good deed, but it can never fix what was broken. And there's been a horrible uh, story in the news over the past couple weeks about a, a woman um, who was driving under the influence, 
and then she struck and killed a bride on her wedding day. A horrible tragedy. And as this woman who's in jail is talking about what she did, she knows it was wrong, but she said, I just want people to know I'm a good person. She's trying to focus everyone upon her goodness, but the problem is she can't fix what happened. She cannot bring back this woman. She can't undo that sin. And for there to be justice, it must be paid for. You see, our good deeds can never fix our bad deeds. Uh, One other way that we often try to do this, to atone for sin, it's by saying, well, maybe I did something wrong, but others are worse. And we look at the bad deeds of others. Look at that group. Look at that person. At least I'm not like them. But again, just by looking at someone else's bad deed can never fix our own bad deeds. If we, in the deeds that we have done, are going to be atoned for, somebody has got to pay. And Jesus has. Listen to this quote from uh, author, pastor, John Stott. He said this, The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. Jesus paid the cost for sin in our place. He did what no one else could do. He was the perfect sacrifice, who lived the perfect life and perfectly atoned for sin. What this means is that sin has been paid for. That's good news. If we can't pay for sin, someone else has to, and Jesus has. Good news, sin has been paid for. Jesus is our perfect representative. He is our atoning sacrifice. But there's one more vital aspect of Christ's work that we must consider. Because if Jesus stayed dead, all that other stuff doesn't work out. See, not only is he our representative and our substitute, Jesus is humanity's victorious Lord. Jesus is humanity's victorious Lord. Um, In her masterful book uh, called The Crucifixion, uh, author Fleming Rutledge quotes another person, uh, Northrop Fry who I don't know, Uh, but this is a great quote. At the beginning beginning of one of her chapters, uh, she says this, The style of the Bible is of the battlefield rather than the cloister. Um, Some some old language there. The style of the Bible is the battlefield, not the cloister. And what she's getting at is the fact that uh, a cloister is like an arched walkway in a monastery. Uh, It's a place of tranquility and peace a place that you go to escape all the difficulty of the world. And she says the Bible's not written like that, where we go to the Bible just to kind of get a break from the hard realities of life, a little quietness, a little inspiration. She says, no, no, the Bible is actually full of battle imagery. It's full of enemies and difficulty, that Christ hasn't come just to call us to a quiet spot. Christ has come to fight and defeat our greatest enemies. That Christ is the conquering king. Let me read to you three passages here that describe Christ as our victorious Lord, our conquering king. Uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Isn't that a great verse? The reason Jesus appeared 
wasn't just to call us into a nice time of quietness. He came to put his foot on Satan's neck. He came to destroy all the injustice, all the corruption. I mean, every bad thing you could think about, Christ came to destroy, to do away with the brokenness that Satan has wreaked into our world. Colossians 2 verse 15 says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Jesus took away the weapons of the evil one. Uh, it, you know, this is the imagery here of, of a battle going on, one side being defeated and then disarmed. And Jesus has disarmed the weapons of darkness. You may think, well, what is that? And we could go into a whole sermon and series on this, but it's primarily this. The primary weapons of darkness is shame. You see, the Scriptures call Satan, uh, or his name means, Satan means the accuser. That an accuser says, uh, look at the bad you've done. Uh, you're guilty because of the things you did. So an accuser just points out our badness. And Satan does not need to make anything up. He just reminds us of what we have done. He reminds us of the guilt within. We sang that earlier. He reminds us of that. And what Jesus has done is he has disarmed that weapon. You see, the way that we deal with our guilt, our shame, is not to pretend it doesn't exist, just to focus upon our goodness. The way we deal with it is by acknowledging it. Yes, I have done those things I should not do. And what Jesus has done is stood in my place. And so we can actually look at ourselves honestly and say, and yet God loves me. And yet God loves me. You see, Satan attempts to uh, give us this message. Because of what you have done, God does not love you. Because of what you have done, others will reject you. And Christ comes in with the message of the cross and says, I could not know you more fully. Every thought you have thought that is wicked, I know. And yet, and yet, I loved you so much I've gone to the cross. You see, that weapon of shame is disarmed, removed because of Christ's work. And it says that he then puts the enemies to open shame, uh, that he actually makes the enemy look silly, that Satan's uh, greatest strategies are only turned on their head, that God actually uses them for his purposes. Jesus has come to disarm the rulers and authorities. Last verse that we're going to look at here, Acts 2, verse 24. This is one of the first messages. It was preached on the day of Pentecost. Peter gave this message to explain the coming of the Spirit. And he says this in the message, that God raised him up, Jesus, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. God raised him up because it wasn't possible for Jesus to be held by death. There is nothing stronger more certain, more final than death. We all die, and no one can escape it. No one is stronger than death, except Jesus. Death could not hold him, it says. It's almost the imagery of trying to put a lion in a cage of cardboard. It could not contain him. So when he conquered death, he burst the bonds of death. And what that means is it's not just he that benefits from death being burst, it's all who belong to him. That death has been transformed. 
It's no longer the enemy it was because of what Christ has done. Now, as many of you know, uh, my family has been uh, going through a time of grief ourselves, and I thank you so much to those of you that have prayed and have uh, sent cards and uh, meals. It's wonderful to be part of a church family, especially during times of grief. So thank you so much for your care. Uh, one of the ways that we've been um, kind of leaning into the truth of Jesus' victory during this time of sorrow has been by reading a, a book um, called uh, Every Moment Holy, Volume 2. And it's a book of liturgies. And one of the liturgies is called Praise to Christ Who Conquered Death. It's a very long liturgy, so I'm not going to read it all. But I want to read you an excerpt from this liturgy. And just listen to the, the confidence. Like Once you really put your feet down on the truth that Christ has conquered death, listen to the confidence that it brings. We read uh, this liturgy. It says, Death's dark shroud has been rent ragged and pierced through by the first dawning of your resurrection light. And after your return, after the final splintering of that dark night, death will possess no lasting fame. The works of death will win no glory for its name. Hear this promise, O children of God, hear and know. Death will surely die forever. His shoddy works undone, his usurped crown torn from his palsied grasp, his impotence unmasked, his power to harm shattered for all eternity like shards of thinnest glass. Receive the glory, do your name, Lord Christ. The grip of death already slips. It cannot slow the steady progress of the resurrection. Now advancing, one day to be made visible in the full outworking of its glad implications. The door that led to death has been remade by Christ into the door that opens into everlasting life. The work is done. The victory is won. So death will be undone. And we whose lives are hid with Christ in God will rise to live eternal, every one. Christ is the victorious Lord. He has conquered Satan, sin, and death. And you know what that is? That's called good news. For all who are in Christ, they share in that victory. Now, in a few weeks, we're going to talk more uh, about our response to the work of Christ. It's a whole separate article in our statement of faith. But I, I can't end today without encouraging you to respond in faith to the work of Christ. Because Jesus didn't do all this just so that we would look at it. Uh, his work was done, it says in this doctrine, for our salvation. His work constitutes the only grounds for our salvation. That means rescue. Jesus intends to rescue us from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, and one day even the presence of sin when He returns. That's salvation. And see, we're all going to respond in one way, shape, or form to the message of Jesus' work. And as we finish up, let me just quickly list. I think there's four common responses to His work. Everyone in the room is leaning into one of these responses. For some, there, it might be to reject the work of Christ. Maybe there's something that's hard to believe about this. You're struggling to understand how it can make sense, or you just don't like it. There are many who, who reject the work of Christ. And what I, what I want to say to you today, if that's you, um, though you may at this time be uh, rejecting Christ, know this. He is not rejecting you. That's why He has come. He has come to seek and to save even those that are running from Him. Christ has come for you. 
Uh, another common response is just to ignore. Not to outright reject, but to ignore, to get distracted by life. So much seems to take our focus right now. But what Christ has done is of utmost importance. I'd encourage you to focus on the things that matter most, uh, Christ, His work, and consider them. Uh, a third response is simply to agree with the work of Christ, uh, even intellectually, believing this is true, but not letting it affect the rest of your life. But Christ has not come just to save our minds. He's come to save all of us, every aspect of our life. He wants all of us. He's died for all of us. And the only proper response is all of us in return. See, this is the fourth response that I encourage you uh, to lean into, and that is to receive the gift of grace by faith. With open hands and open hearts to say to Jesus, yes, I believe you are my perfect representative, my atoning sacrifice, my victorious Lord. I trust you. Famous hymn concludes this way, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Will you stand with me? And we're going to close in prayer and a song. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the work of Christ. Lord, we are thankful that you have loved us enough to come for us, even when we were not looking for you, but that you have uh, taken the, initi the initiative to pursue us. Thank you, Jesus, uh, for your work, for being our perfect representative. Uh, we look at your life and we are amazed by your life. Uh, the beauty, the power, the goodness. Um, thank you for living this in our place. And thank you now for representing us in heaven and pleading on our behalf. Thank you also for dying our death, the perfect death that perfectly pays for sin, past, present, future. It is finished in the cross of Christ. And Lord, we thank you that you are our victorious Lord. Uh, nothing and no one is stronger than you. Uh, Satan, sin, and death, uh, you are greater than. So Lord, help us to see what you have done, and to put the weight of our lives in your work for us. We thank you, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.